0: Hey, everyone. I'm Ben Norton, and you are listening to or watching Multipolarista. Today, we're going to talk about not only economic, not only economics, not only political economy, but geopolitical economy. And I'm joined by a, a good friend of mine, and I think one of the, the most important political economists in the world today, because she's popularizing this concept of geopolitical economy, combining geopolitics with political economy. And I think this is a very needed in welcome development. And um, speaking about Radhika Desai, she is a professor at the University of Manitoba and the author of many books. And uh, she actually has a book that's just about to come out. It's called Capitalism, Coronavirus and War. And um, she'll talk about that later in this, but she wanted me to stress that this book that she's publishing will be available as an, an ebook for free for anyone who wants to read it. And then she'll have a physical copy as well that's available. She's also the author of the book, Geopolitical Economy. She wrote the book on it, which is um, a very interesting read. And I know Radhika because of her work with the International Manifesto Group, which is an excellent excellent organization. I myself am involved with their work and also with uh, the Geopolitical Economy Research Group. So you've probably seen some of the seminars that, that the International Manifesto Group has held talking about. Uh, the new Cold War, China, Russia, the war in Ukraine, a a wide variety of things. But today, I want to talk more about the uh, economic crisis that the world is seeing. And this is coming on multiple fronts. We see a large problem with inflation going on around the world. And I've talked about this with a friend of the show, Michael Hudson, brilliant economist, and Ronica has, in fact, worked with Professor Hudson. And as Professor Hudson's work has shown, inflation has been a, a problem actually going back many decades with the financialization of you know, and these neoliberal policies that have been imposed around the world, especially in the US. But most of that inflation was actually an asset price inflation. So we've seen a huge increase in asset prices as well at the same time. Until recently, there was not a significant increase in demand because, of course, many workers didn't have an increase in their wages, so they weren't able to, to consume more and buy more. But what we have seen especially in the past two years with the coronavirus pandemic and the world coming out of it, is a rise in the consumer price index. And that has led to inflation that has hurt the average wages of a lot of people who have to pay more for food, for basic services, and especially for energy. So I wanted to bring on Radhika today to talk about this inflation crisis and specifically the impact that it's going to have in the global south, because we've seen mainstream bourgeois financial institutions, especially the International Monetary Fund, warn of a potential economic crisis, of a debt crisis that's going to hit the entire world, and particularly the global south. So Professor Desai, before I go to you, I just want to read a few comments that came from the International Monetary Fund's press briefing this October. And when I saw these comments, I knew I had to have you on to respond to them. This was a press briefing that was held with uh, Pierre-Olivier Gorincha, who is the director of the research department at the IMF. And he warned of an an economic crisis the world is seeing. He said there were three forces, and we'll talk about that later. This is what he said. The NATO proxy war in Ukraine, the cost of living crisis, and the slowdown in China. But I want to focus on what this means for the entire world. He says he expects that the 2023 slowdown will be broad-based, Countries accounting for a third of the global economy are expected to contract this year or in 2023. And he said the worst is yet to come. And he talked about some of the reasons why, but specifically with the rise of inflation in the consumer price index, it means that this is causing a uh, squeezing real incomes and undermining macroeconomic stability. There's also the energy crisis, but these are the comments that I wanted to highlight in specific. He said, the strength of the dollar is also a major challenge. The dollar is now at its strongest since the early 2000s, mostly against advanced economies, but also against emerging markets. And if you look at a graph, which I'll show in a second, the majority of the world's currencies, at least the ones that are used for international trade usually, have devalued against the U.S. dollar so that the the significant rallying of the U.S. dollar is going to have uh going to caused cause serious economic difficulties for countries that have dollar-denominated debt. The, the head of the research department for the IMF said, the global economy is headed for stormy waters. Now is the time for emerging market policymakers to batten down the hatchets. He said, for many low-income countries, they're already close to or in debt distress. Progress toward orderly debt restructuring is urgently needed to avoid a wave a wave of sovereign debt crises. Time may soon run out. And then later on, he talked about how the strength of the dollar is putting a lot of strain on a number of countries. It makes the price of imported goods, which are vo- invoice in dollars, higher. So that is increasing inflation pressures in other countries. And then there are also tightening financial conditions, A lot of companies and also governments have dollar debt, and that becomes more expensive to service as the dollar appreciates. So I hit you with a lot there, but the the main points I want you to respond to here basically are that the IMF is warning publicly that the global south is facing a wave of debt crises because countries in the global south, as their currencies devalue against the U.S. dollar, are going to be, it's going to be more and more difficult for them to pay off their dollar dominated debt. And furthermore, they're also hit by rising interest rates from the Federal Reserve, which is pushing federal or pushing uh, central banks around the world to raise their interest rates. So the IMF says this is a perfect storm for Global South debt crises that could be similar to the Global South or Third World debt crisis in the 1980s. It was a very long intro, but that's what the IMF is saying. I'm wondering if you agree with that and what this could mean. Is the Global South going to face a massive debt crisis like in the 1980s? Uh,
1: yeah. I mean, first of all, let me say that I think we are a very long away, long way away from a 1980s-style crisis. The reason is very simple. In the 1980s or late 70s, early 1980s, the, uh, the Federal Reserve under the chairmanship of Paul Volcker conducted an extremely, uh, shall we say, brutal experiment in which he basically said, we are going to tackle inflation. And in order to tackle inflation, and remember, the, the one thing you have to know is that basically when there is inflation, most capitalist authorities only apply one way of dealing with it, which is to allow, to increase interest rates. They can tackle inflation in a number of other ways, but they choose not to do that for reasons we can discuss. So they only have the sledgehammer of high interest rates to tackle inflation. So Paul Volcker basically restricted money supply and he let interest rates go as far as they wanted to go in order to combat inflation. And you have to remember also that they had to go higher than the rate of inflation in order to make real interest rates, that is the difference between the nominal interest rate and the inflation rate, to make the real interest rate positive. Now, we are not there. And the reason that can be summed up in a single word, you used it yourself, financialization. When Paul Volcker did what he did, he didn't have to worry about the huge mountain of debt and speculative asset markets and so on, which were all reliant on a long regime of low interest rates. I'm glad you brought this chart up, because if you can see there, what we have now, okay, so interest rates have been steadily rising, but they remain far short of the peaks they had reached before. And what's also really interesting is that they remain short of the peak that they reached in the early 2000s, the peak at which they burst the housing and mortgage credit bubble. So because this financial house of cards exists, I would say, I would wager that the, and already we are seeing it, you know, back when, Uh, back in August when uh, Jerome Powell said, you know, he was going to tackle inflation and do what it takes, etc., It was a lot of tough talk in the hope that by talking tough, he would make inflation go away. But actually inflation is not so amenable just to touch tough talk. And the reason for for his hope was that he knew that he cannot take interest rates above a certain amount because it would bring the entire House of Cards crashing down. And by the way, it's not just a house of cards. The Federal Reserve always uses uh, inflation rates and unemployment rates, et cetera, to justify its policy decisions as though it is making policy in the interests of ordinary Americans and even the world. But in reality, what the main thing that the Federal Reserve and a long string of chairpeople of the Federal Reserve going back to at least Alan Greenspan, what they have been primarily concerned about is the vast quantity of elite wealth that rests on the said house of cards. They will not bring it down because who pays the piper calls the tune and the people who essentially the Federal Reserve is is as good, you know, we we extol it as an independent central bank. In reality. It is only independent of ordinary people's interests. It is completely dependent on the elites. And so they are not going to do anything to to, to destabilize elite wealth. And already we are seeing the Federal Reserve basically making noises about how they cannot allow uh, interest rates to go very high. So we are a very long way. And so the basic difference is Paul Volcker didn't have to worry about this house of cards. Jerome Powell does. So he cannot raise interest rates very much. So that's the first and most important point That we should make then a lot of other things do follow from that so yes of course the federal reserve has been raising interest rates but a lot of other uh uh, central banks have been doing so to a lesser extent so among the major capitalist countries yes the federal uh, the dollar is going above that the other currencies the euro the pound the yen etc etc that's certainly true but if you look at foreign exchange markets, it, the situation is much more complex than that. To take the, just one obvious example, the, uh, the American authorities, the U.S. authorities, wanted to essentially crash the Russian economy, to impose and inflict so much economic pain on Russia that there would be a popular revolution against President Putin, etc. The fact of the matter, as all of this is that all of this has failed. American sanctions have boomeranged, and the ruble has strengthened considerably. So, Uh, There there is that. And finally, I would say that even where emerging market currencies are concerned, not all of them are doing very badly. Some of them are tanking, Pakistan's rupees tanking, Argentina's currency is tanking, but many others are doing okay; They're remaining stable. So it really and one of the things one has to understand is that currency markets are basically also places of immense speculation. So. We will have to see how this unfolds on a case-by-case basis.
0: Yeah, well, that's good to hear. I'm I'm glad to hear that you are not as uh, pessimistic as the IMF. Um, so I just want to show a, a graph here of the devaluation, the depreciation of international currencies against the U.S. dollar. This is one of the more, um, uh, this is one of the more uh, widespread or. Um, in inclusive graphs that I've seen. This is from Bloomberg, although it's in Spanish, but people can get the idea. It shows many international currencies against the U.S. dollar. This is largely focusing on Colombia. And this is, a, you know, I'm in Latin America, and this is something I've been following pretty closely because it's become a, a source of political instability in, in several countries. You mentioned Argentina, which has chronically had very high rates of inflation because it's trapped in odious debt from the IMF. And that's something we'll get to in a second. But it's also hit countries across the region Colombia just had um, its peso has, has devalued to 5000 to the U.S. dollar for the first time. And it's a trend we see in many countries. I mean, you mentioned not only in the global south, you also, there are also many countries that you know, are, are kind of part of the imperialist world system. So if you see this graph here, you also see that the, um, that the New Zealand currency, the Australian dollar, the Japanese yen, the Norwegian crown, um, the Polish currency... Many different currencies are devaluing against the U.S. dollar. And there's another graph here that shows kind of currencies that are used more in, in uh, the imperial core. And this is also from Bloomberg. So you see the Mexican peso is hasn't devalued that much. And it's an interesting example why. Um, the Brazilian real has devalued um, the Singaporean dollar, Canadian dollar, Australian dollar, Taiwanese dollar, New Zealand dollar, the euro, of course, the British pound. Uh, and and the Japanese yen especially. So um, you're saying that maybe this could be a temporary phenomenon, but the argument that even the IMF is saying, and this is something that's kind of similar to the 1970s and 80s that we can maybe talk about, is that countries in the global south that have a devalued currency, many of them have their external debt uh, that is denominated in US dollars. So obviously their central bank can't print US dollars and with a devaluation of currency, it makes it much more difficult for those countries to pay off the U.S. dollar-denominated debt. Furthermore, with increasing interest rates, even though, as you said, maybe they won't increase to the level of the Volcker shock in the 19, in, from 1979 until the early 1980s, it's going to be much more difficult for those countries to pay off that debt. And there's, there could potentially be a series of debt crises. So even if it doesn't go up to the Volcker shock of, of the early 80s, do you think this is going to be a significant problems for con- problem for countries? And we can talk more about the, the 82 debt crisis that was set off, especially in Latin America. But that's what, let, that's what led to the imposition of Washington consensus neoliberal structural adjustment policies across the Global South. Do you think that that could be something similar that we, we see today?
1: Right. So the big difference, uh, uh, another really big difference between the 1980s and today is that in the 1980s, throughout the 80s and the 90s, we were living in a regime of relatively high interest rates. Since 2000, we have been living in a regime of relatively low interest rates and what's called the easy money policy or lax monetary policy, including quantitative easing and and, and so on and so forth. So all of these things mean that the environment is quite different. Now, as far as the relationship between Western financial institutions, particularly in the United States financial institutions and the rest of and the developing world is concerned, it's precisely because the Federal Reserve has been wedded to a regime of low interest rates that what has happened is that, you know so I mean the question is why is so much of the debt of these third world countries in, in dollars? The reason it's in dollars is because American financial institutions have been eager to lend to third world countries because interest rates in the United States are very low. There has been so much money creation that the sheer amount of money chasing returns is enormous. It's gigantic, it's monstrously big. And so what you have throughout the financial world is a situation in which a lot of money is chasing ever thinner margins. So in this context, any new opportunity to try to make a little bit more money is very welcome. And that's why in this period, in the 2000s and 2010s, we have seen a big expansion of lending, particularly securitized lending in the form of bonds, to third world countries, and yes, uh, many third world countries, uh, particularly if their economies, uh, if their currencies are depreciating against the dollar, they are going to land into financial crises. S- uh, Sri Lanka is already in a major financial crisis. It has got is back at the door of the IMF, and the IMF is going to impose the same sort of structural adjustment policies on Sri Lanka today as it was imposed on many Latin American and African countries back in the 1980s. So we are going to see a lot of pain like that. But at the same time, what I want to underline is that the situation is very different and the context is very different. So uh, some countries will definitely face uh, 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 financial crises, but there are other countries whose currencies are not holding up against the dollar because the same... Issue applies. Now, let me take, say one other thing. If the, uh, if the Federal Reserve chairman, person, uh, chairman Jerome Powell will not increase interest rates to the level necessary to, to squash inflation uh, through these means, because as I said, there are other ways of squashing inflation, but the Federal Reserve will not use them because they practically smack of socialism. We'll come back to that if you want. But the, because the Federal Reserve only wants to use one method, but it cannot use that method to the extent required, the real bad news is that we are in for a prolonged period of stagflation. So that's the point. They will not be able to solve either the slow growth problem nor the inflation problem. So the two problems will remain. And by the way, I should say that this is also really the fact that it has re-emerged. I'm sorry about the dog. The fact that it has re-emerged today, the same, well, similar, it looks similar to the 1970s, shows that capitalism is unable to essentially... Uh, have a sufficiently robust and dynamic economy as to keep inflation under control. We are looking at a sick and senile capitalism. That's what is a fundamentally the problem. And by the way, I should also add one other thing, which is that you are right, there will probably be a lot of debt crises because some countries are far more vulnerable than others. But in this context, we will also see something else. We will see increasing contestations uh, between the uh, Western world and China, where the Western world will constantly Accused China of being responsible for the uh, developing countries' debt crisis, and there will be a tug of war between the Western powers and China as to if there is a debt crisis, who will be paid back first, etc. So we are going to see all of these shenanigans. But underlying all of them, what we will also see is increasingly a move away. If for country, for all the countries which can do it, will try to move away from borrowing from what what Michael Hudson and I have called the dollar creditocracy, because this dollar creditocracy is precisely the dollar creditocracy which is subject to such volatility that you cannot borrow uh, with any security that you will be paying back only what you agreed to pay back rather than some insane amounts simply because the federal reserve decides to raise interest rates or simply because speculators decide to leave your currency and your country and go somewhere else so you we the world needs a more secure financial system and for the last 70 years and more the world has been prevented from having the international financial system it really needs that would really promote development because the united states has wanted to impose its own will and its own currency on the rest of the world
0: very well said and this is a good pivot to what i wanted to talk about which is the creation of this kind of dollar based financialized imperialist system and you and professor hudson have spelled it out very well you know as michael hudson says it's a kind of imperialist free lunch for the united states where the us has this dollar recycling system into into U.S. Treasury bonds. So other countries that uh, when the U.S. government, for instance, in Korea pays in U.S. dollars for the goods and services consumed by the U.S. troops that are militarily occupying South Korea, then the South Korean Central Bank and other companies, they invest those dollars back in U.S. banks or in U.S. Treasury bonds, therefore circulating the dollars in this imperialist system and therefore paying effectively paying for their own US military occupation and um, you know professor hudson has spelled that out in interviews i've done with him but this actually pivots to the question i wanted to ask about the 1980s third world debt crisis because if you look at the situation now there are so many parallels to what was happening in the late 70s and early 80s although you have pointed out a few differences and i want to i want to um, interrogate those differences especially the other significant difference being China, being alternative financial institutions, the BRICS Bank, and other banks that provide alternatives to the IMF and the World Bank and the uh, the Washington Consensus. But to, in order to get to there, let, let's talk about the third world debt crisis. So the conventional narrative um, that economists usually uh, say is that what happened in 1973 ostensibly in in response to the Yom Kippur War. Um, OPEC, although there's arguments about that, OPEC initiates an oil embargo that leads to a massive increase in oil prices. This means that many countries, especially in the global South, that are reliant on oil imports have huge um, deficits and they have to find a way to finance those because they're importing a lot of oil. So what happens is that those dollars that the OPEC countries, especially the Persian Gulf monarchies, those dollars that they received from oil payments because of the US petrodollar system that was created in the 70s, those petrodollars are recycled back in US commercial banks. So that means that there's all these commercial banks in the US that have ton, They have this glut of dollars and they want to do something with it and they have very low interest rates. So they lend a lot of that money to countries, especially in Latin America, uh, Brazil, Mexico, Argentina, and other countries in the Global South, they have all of these uh, these loans that they have at very low interest rates, and they use those to fund infrastructure programs and import substitution industrialization policies to develop their economies. And then what happens is after uh, the interest rates go up in 1979 with the Volcker shock, it makes paying back those debts almost impossible because, one, the, the, their currencies devalued against the US dollar. And then furthermore, you also have high interest rates. So here's a graph showing the third world uh, debt crisis in the 1980s and how um, actually the neoliberal policies that were imposed on the global south. Oh, this actually, this shows it on paint. Let me uh, let me show, uh, uh, make it a uh, full screen here. It's better. There we go. So what actually happened? Oh, that didn't that didn't help either. Anyway, whatever. Um, the point is that let me see if I can zoom in more. That's that didn't work.
1: Just just say the starting and ending, and
0: the rest will be
1: clear. Nineteen seventy to two thousand. Okay, Here we go. So,
0: so, anyway, the argument often made is that well, this is not just an argument. The fact is that so that's when the IMF comes in in the 1980s is when all of these countries in the Global South, they default on their debt, they can't pay it out. So then the IMF steps in to help these US banks renegotiate debt with these countries. And in order to renegotiate the debt, Mexico, Argentina, Brazil, countries across the Global South are forced to impose neoliberal structural adjustment policies. So maybe one of the differences today is that if there is this mass wave of debt crises, as the IMF is warning about, other country, countries have other options other than just the IMF imposing structural adjustment, maybe China, maybe the BRICS system. So that's the narrative of the third world debt crisis. I'm wondering if you can respond to that. Is maybe yeah, there's sure. is that accurate?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, let me just say that, uh, you know, um, I agree, of course, with Michael that, um, The United States uh, has always tried to run the dollar system and the dollar creditocracy as it became after the 1970s in a way as to get itself a free lunch. But there's a difference between trying to get a free lunch and getting a free lunch. So I always look for the contradictions in the system. So, for example, I would say that, uh, first of all, the uh, OPEC countries uh, increase the price of oil in part because the dollar was falling so precipitously so that the the money they were getting for um uh, for their oil was being devalued so then they had to increase the price of oil to 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 come back to 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 some sort of a, 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 a you know uh, return for their for their oil that they were getting. So that's one thing. Secondly, yes, it's true. Uh, it's apparently the result of a certain amount of Machiavellian diplomacy on the part of Henry Kissinger that he persuaded the OPEC countries after a great deal of hostility and, and, and negotiation, he persuaded the OPEC countries to deposit their oil surpluses in U.S. and Western, other Western financial institutions Um, So, so, so that, you know, essentially that would increase the, the, the demand for, 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 um, for dollars and so on. So, but at the same time, I would say, and, and I should say that in doing so, the next proposals by Japan, by Europe, both of which are important centers of capitalist accumulation, but that are also energy dependent. And they had tried to make proposals to say, okay, OPEC can have uh, higher prices for its oil, but at the same time, perhaps what OPEC could do was it could lend these surpluses back to these countries through some multilaterally negotiated facility so as to minimize the oil shock. But the United States refused to permit that. So now All this OPEC oil surpluses, the petrodollars, as you rightly pointed out, are deposited in Western financial institutions. And you might think, oh, isn't that great? But think about it. If you're a bank, it puts you in a very difficult situation because you have all this money being deposited. Now you have to lend it because in order you know when you accept a deposit, you have to pay interest on that deposit. How are you going to earn that interest? Which is why all these Western financial institutions went on a lending spree and where did they go on a lending spree they couldn't exactly expand their lending in in the west itself because western countries were in the throes of the stagflationary crisis that plagued them throughout the 1970s and in many ways has still not been resolved so then they went on a lending spree to third world countries and often even to the communist countries they began to lend massively to these countries This money that was lent in the 1970s was a sign of the desperation of these Western financial institutions because they had to lend. And and they were often lending to uh, third world countries. Third world countries were able to borrow at what were effectively negative interest rates because nominal interest rates may be here but inflation rates were here so in reality the real interest rates were negative the so money was borrowed at these very low interest rates so and and with this money many of these third world countries actually as you pointed out quite rightly and i tend to, i like to emphasize many third world countries financed very substantial industrialization programs. So I would say that they were benefiting. And in the 1970s, third world growth remained quite robust. And we have to remember that. So in that sense, the United States' stratagem didn't really quite work in in, in a way as to strengthen the dollar or to strengthen the American financial system. On the contrary, and you will remember that at the end of the 1970s, things are so bad that the dollar reached more than $800 an ounce of gold. In today's terms, that would be more than $3,000. And gold has not reached there yet. So you can imagine the depth of the crisis of the dollar. And it was in this context that Paul Volcker arrives and he finally then decides to take the desperate measure of raising interest rates. Yes, we remember that this was very bad for the third world and I'm going to come back to that, but don't forget that it imposed the steepest worst recession on the United States and the rest of the first capitalist world that was known since the Great Depression. So it was extremely painful for these countries but nevertheless okay so then the, the uh, volcker came and he increased interest rates and yes once he increased interest rates there was inevitably a debt crisis in many of the high borrowing third world countries not all third world countries had borrowed massively but yes latin american countries in particular had gorged themselves on these loans now here also i would like to remind people that you know debt is a two-way relationship. If you are a financial institution and you lend, uh, you know, essentially without proper consideration and you lend to irresponsible borrowers, you may very well stand to lose that money. And, uh, you know, as Michael always likes to point out, debts that cannot be paid will not be paid. This was was generally the way in which the debt relationship was perceived. But now there was a big change wrought in the debt relationship. But before I come to that change, let me remind everybody that back in the early 80s, I actually vividly remember Fidel Castro advocating all the uh, Latin American governments because they were in the worst position to repudiate that debt because the fact of the matter was that the debt had been contracted in completely different circumstances um, at negative interest rates and suddenly these people were saddled with massive interest pay, uh, interest and principal payments that were far beyond what had ever been contracted and when such a big change occurs you can always demand to renegotiate a contract you can say we will not pay we have paid you enough etc none of these options were taken by essentially what we may call the comprador elites of the latin american countries and these elites put their countries through a decade sometimes two decades of eye-watering economic pain. It was terrible economic pain. So this, so so yes, this did happen, uh, and, and 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 so and, and and many African countries, by the way, were put through similar levels of pain, even though their level of indebtedness was much less. Asian countries, by contrast, had on the whole been much more prudent. So. OK, so this is the scenario we have. And yes, there was a lot of suffering. But at the same time, and, and, and I should also add one final point before. You see, yes, the IMF and the World Bank came in this very problematic scenario. They acted as bailiffs for Western financial institutions um, and imposed a lot of economic pain on these countries. But at, the, at that time, there was no there was no China. There were no alternative sources. There was also, you know, this was the first time this had been done. So the world was just thrown for a loop. At least these countries were thrown for a loop. And so they essentially became, were subject to this. But another point I'd like to make is that by the late 1990s, you got another episode of debt crisis, financial crisis, etc. the infamous East Asian financial crisis. And the behavior of the IMF and the World Bank in that context, when they were dealing with far more powerful economies, including the economy of South Korea, which is an absolute industrial giant. And the way in which the IMF and the World Bank went from you know, before the crisis, praising the fundamentals of these economies, how they were great places to invest, encouraging financial capital from all over the world to invest there. And then, suddenly, the moment there was a financial crisis, they turned on a dime and started talking about these economies as crony capitalisms that it was all their fault, etc. In reality, there was a whole another dimension which we'll talk about. But what I want the point I want to make is that. From that point onwards into the the new decade, not only did China become more important and the BRICS became more important and so on, but the portfolio, the loan portfolio of the IMF and the World Bank shrank and they lost much of the... So, you know, in the 1980s and into the 1990s, the IMF and the World Bank were like these two huge uh, sort of all-powerful monsters on the world scene, and suddenly they had shrunk to uh, to to, to a fraction of their previous size, and their influence was gone. And you had a very different scenario in the new century, which we can talk about. But I just wanted to point to these contradictions in the situation, because just because the United States wants a free lunch doesn't mean it gets a free lunch. It makes every attempt, but it doesn't always get it.
0: Very well said. Yeah, those those important those are very important points to keep in mind. What 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 interests me most about this moment and trying to go back to study specifically the third world debt crisis in the early eighties is I think in my view and maybe you disagree but in my view the the third world debt crisis especially when Mexico defaulted on its foreign debt in nineteen eighty two and then Argentina followed and then Brazil especially in Latin America that really marked the point. In which neoliberalism was forcibly imposed yes. on on the region and the world, and we should see that as as this kind of watershed moment in the history of neoliberalism. It wasn't adopted voluntarily by all these countries around the world. It was imposed, really, at the barrel of a gun. At least, a, you know, um, political power flows out of the barrel of a gun, and so does economic power. So, in in the sense that. In Latin America, most governments really up until the 70s still had some kind of mixed economy. They certainly weren't all socialist, but specifically the term import substitution industrialization was very popular in developmental economics. And we see this now today in places like Brazil. Lula da Silva himself has been closely associated and the Workers Party of Brazil have been closely associated with developmental economics and ISI. And it seems like that model in parts of the region are coming back. We see now in Colombia, um, under Rafael Correa in Ecuador, um, in uh, Brazil, of course, under Lula, we see a move back toward ISI, import substitution industrialization, as a model, as opposed to the export-oriented neoliberal model. And I think another significant difference is not only do countries in the region have alternatives in terms of the BRIC system in China, in terms of lending, but also they learned from history. So... Actually, I have this graph now and it should actually be legible this time. And if you look at the graph, I mean, when the IMF stepped in and started imposing the Washington Consensus on all of these countries, their debt increased. And the leaders of these countries aren't stupid. They understand that they can't just keep re- re- redoing these same neoliberal policies. You know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing again and again and expecting right. different results. You mentioned earlier, um, Radhika, you mentioned that uh, the, that Sri Lanka, which defaulted on its foreign debt, by the way, a, a plurality of that debt is owned by U.S. and European private financial institutions, including vulture funds like BlackRock. China owns less than 10%. Japan owns more of Sri Lanka's foreign debt than China. But anyway, the point is that Sri Lanka is right now negotiated, n- negotiating a 16th. IMF bailout. So if it didn't work 15 times, how do they expect it to work the 16th time? I mean, it, it, just looking at the data, this is World Bank data from on this graph. So objectively speaking, the Washington consensus and the neoliberal policies imposed only have made the debt worse. So clearly what I think is that if there is another series of debt crises and defaults in the years to come with the depreciation of currency and the rise of interest rates, maybe we could see a moment in the next few years that is also a watershed moment, like the watershed moment in in the 1980s, whereas in the 1980s, it led to countries adopting neoliberal structural adjustment. Maybe now, if countries uh, default on their debt and they look toward China or the BRICS, maybe they will be incentivized to adopt a different economic model because maybe... I mean, China usually tends to be much more hands off in its lending, but maybe the BRICS could be incentivized to say to these countries, you should you should try a different kind of developmental economics. And I'm curious if you think there is a push to incentivize countries that are defaulting to try a new path of economic development. that's not simply based on keeping wages as low as possible and trying to maximize exports of raw commodities to the imperial core
1: no I I mean you, you have you know there's so much in what you said that we could talk about so let me just begin try to be a little bit systematic so first of all I will say that this phenomena that you know people do learn you know after all we are human beings and it's human to learn it is not learning that is a that needs to be explained it is what needs to be explained is when people don't learn so the fact of the matter is that in Latin America for example you got after the nightmare of the 80s and the 90s you got the emergence of the pink tide in latin america and that was already beginning you know you were talking about lula but lula was part of this pink tide in the earlier incarnation so to speak in his earlier period in the presidency and so you had uh, uh the pink tide governments in latin america already seeking a way out of the neoliberal straitjacket uh also don't forget that Eastern Europe and the the former Soviet Union, Russia, were all put through the nightmare of shock therapy in the 1990s. And they, too, returned to a semblance of normalcy, uh, rejecting the uh, rigors of neoliberalism and at least modifying considerably their policies. And uh, I would say that in other countries, such as, for example, many Asian countries and even in India, for the longest time, though there was a fair degree of elite consensus in favor of neoliberalism the requirements of running and predominantly an economy of predominantly poor people, and still a very agricultural economy, required governments to moderate the neoliberalism. Now we will leave India aside in the present moment because it has a god awful government right now. But I would say that that learning was already taking place. And then by by the by the two thousands, what you've also got is you've got the rise of China. Now I agree with you, China is very hands off very serious about insisting that it does not interfere in the affairs of uh, these partner nations, whether they are trade partners or investment partners or what have you. And I think it's correct to do that. But I would say in my writing, one of the things I've emphasized is that if countries... Uh, who are you know increasingly f- uh, t- taking the opportunity to partner with China because China offers much better terms both on trade and on investment on aid etc cetera, etc. Cetera. If you want to really benefit from partnering with China, you also have to learn from China. The fact of the matter is that China is today the most powerful developmental state, not only has it done its import substituting industrialization, but now it is taking, in that having created a, a broad-based industrial economy, it is of course now scaling the heights of new technology and opposing a technological challenge, a competitive challenge to the old senile homelands of capitalism, particularly the United States, which is why, of course, you see so much hostility being directed towards China. So if Third world countries today want to take the full benefit of what China represents. They should not just partner with China, but they should also emulate China in terms of trying to recreate a developmental state at home, which will create a broadly based industrial economy, which will manage trade in such a way that is beneficial to creating a broad based industrial economy. And of course, we'll partner with, you know, obviously, Import substituting industrialization is very good if you are a sizable economy. But if you are a small economy, you can partner with other economies in order to enjoy the economies of scale. So all of these things are once again on the agenda, and I think they should be. But I would say also that we are still at the very early stages of this process. Unfortunately, in most third world countries, what we see is that the elites are still captive of the globalization ideology somehow the idea was that if you simply free up trade flows and investment flows and so on that somehow everybody will benefit completely forgetting that the history of the world shows us the geopolitical economy of the world shows us that every country that has developed has done so through a developmental state policy, which has insisted on managing trade flows, managing investment flows, and so on. You cannot, you can fail, but you can try and fail at this, but you cannot do it <coughs> without making the attempt. So this is, so, so, so you rightly point out that this realization is coming back. And I think the example of China can only benefit a third world countries. And I would say also that in the present context, Russia, which uh, has not exactly uh, distinguished itself. The Putin government has not distinguished itself by being a developmental state. But in the context of sanctions over the last eight years, and now in the context of the Ukraine conflict, what we are seeing in Russia is that willy-nilly war and and hybrid war is forcing Russia to become more and more of a developmental state. One of the um, one of the uh, 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 not very often talked about uh, aspects of Russia's success, is that when sanctions were imposed on Russia starting in 2014, a lot of the sanctions affected the uh, uh, imports of food into Russia. So the Russians actually managed to transform their agriculture and now they have become a major agricultural exporter. The same can be done. They are also now talking about doing this, you know, bringing back, planning. Uh, to begin with for for the arms production industry, which of course they need. But once that is done, who is to say that the rationality of this strategy will not become appealing to other sectors of industry as well? So absolutely, I think we we uh, we have gone through a very long night of neoliberalism and the world is coming out of the other side realizing what fools they have been, that, the, that, that, that in fact, in the golden age period before neoliberalism, we knew what it took to develop economies. And we have to go back to that wisdom and, of course, develop it further.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, you, you always explain these things with such lucidity. Um, I, I just want to I want to pivot a little bit to an article you wrote about inflation. But before that, I have a final question in response to this IMF press briefing with the director of the research department of the IMF. Uh, there was an interesting question. Um, so the IMF research director said that the U.S. dollar could potentially be overvalued. This is leading to a depreciation of other currencies against the U.S. dollar. And this could potentially lead to a wave of debt crises in the Global South. And then one of the questioners, pr- presumably a journalist or someone, asked if it's necessary or possible to have another plaza accord sometime down the road. That's a reference to the 1985 agreement in which the U.S., Germany, the U.S., West Germany at the time, uh, Britain, France, and Japan, um, the the other countries agreed to depreciate uh, to, uh, sorry, for the U.S. dollar to depreciate against their currencies. And that is what led infamously to the asset price bubble in Japan which eventually popped in the 1990s, and Japan has arguably never economically recovered from the overvaluation of the Japanese yen, which made Jack- Japanese exports less competitive. And this came after, you know, we talked about the Volcker shock and, and stagflation in the U.S., but also um, the Ronald Reagan administration essentially waged a kind of economic war against Japan, which ironically, you know, is ostensibly a U.S. ally. But in the 1980s, it's forgotten. Ronald Reagan imposed a 100% tariff on Japanese goods. And then, of course, that the Plaza Accord followed, which is what um, devalu- depreciated the U.S. dollar against the Japanese yen and eventually led to that bubble. So uh, Michael Hudson argues that the Plaza Accord, potentially, perhaps intentionally, was the U.S. kind of trying to implode the Japanese economy to prevent Japan from overtaking the U.S. as an economic power, especially in terms of the the very powerful Japanese industry, which was outcompeting the U.S. auto industry and and tech tech industries. So I'm curious if you think, you know, this call that the IMF is essentially saying that there potentially might need to be another plaza accord. Obviously, you know, the the, the parallel instead of Japan would be China. Japan in the 1980s is China now. The fear in the 1980s was that Japan would overtake the U.S. economically. Well, China arguably has already overtaken the U.S. economically. So do you think that there will be a push for some kind of new plaza accord? And, and I don't think China would be stupid enough to go along with that. But I'm curious what you think about the IMF's comments on, there, on that proposal.
1: Right. Uh, so first of all, let me just say that... Um, Again, to once again, remind you that the United States may try all sorts of things, but it's a separate question whether it succeeds. So, yes. The, uh, so it's true that in uh, in fact, in the early 1980s, one of the things that happened is that with the appreciation of the American dollar to absurd heights, um, what did happen is that, yes, of course, the Japanese were able to export uh, hand over fist, you know, because the Japanese yen was relatively devalued and therefore Japanese uh, 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 products were extremely attractive to Americans and they were destroying American industry. This is something you have to remember. And in the 1980s, America, the United States did have substantial industry so uh so 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 then of course the united the ronald reagan then slapped all these import tariffs and then there was the plaza accord but the thing is my own interpretation of the plaza accord is that essentially the the dollar had gone so high so absurdly high that really it was bound to come crashing it was bound to come down the question is whether it would come down it would crash or whether it would be brought down in a in a managed manner and this is what the plaza accord was about if i, I would not say so 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 the so in the and, and 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 as far as laying the japanese economy low is concerned yes it's true that by the 1990s japan came to by the mid 1990s it was finally beginning to uh, uh, appear as though you know japan is suffering from secular stagnation etc but i wouldn't say that it was entirely a result of you know the success of some kind of you know a Machiavellian American strategy on the count on the contrary I would say a couple of things number one well into the 1990s Japan's success was sufficiently uh, 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 shall we say threatening to the United States that people you know in, in the uh, Americans were reading books like Japan is number one and 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 so on. Um, Giovanni Arrighi, in 1994, he published his book, The Long 20th Century, in which he concluded the book by saying that the United States is now failing and that it is very likely that Japan was going to overtake the United States. Um, So the Japanese challenge was very great. And in 1992, the 1992 presidential election featured the most successful third party uh, uh, candidate Who was that? It was Ross Perot. Why was he successful? Because he was arguing that if the Americans wanted to, the Americans wanted to succeed, they had to imitate Japan. They had to engage in the sort of industrial policy, the sort of uh, management of trade and capital flows, et cetera, that that, that the Japanese were doing. But the United States elite, parts of the United States elite didn't want to do this and they backed Clinton instead. They didn't want to do this because they didn't care about industry. What they wanted to what they cared about was to create this dollar creditocracy, which was in the making for already for a couple of decades by now, and expand it as a kind of, you know, I think who was it, Yanis Varoufakis or somebody, you know, Wired magazine called the American Financial System a giant vampire squid that sucks you know, a value from all over the world and brings it to the United States. It's a predatory system, but that's what they wanted to create. So they sacrificed American industry. If you look at a graph of American industry, you see an unrelenting decline throughout the neoliberal era. No wonder they are being challenged by China. In fact, I was reading in the news, I mean, you know, there's if there's one industry the United States still has, you might think it's the military-industrial complex. And what do we read in the newspapers today? We read that, in fact, Uh, Yeah, that's a very good graph. We read that, in fact, even the arms industry in the United States has sunk to such a level that as the Europeans, having given a lot of their old and obsolete arms to Ukraine, are now looking to replenish their supply of arms, they are looking less to the United States and more to, guess where, South Korea why because the south koreans are apparently able to produce arms more cheaply competitively pretty, pretty give uh, not only produce them more cheaply but offer a higher quality and quantity of arms and deliver them on time go figure i mean after all the all the coddling that the american uh, uh, economy has uh, american arms industry has got this is the result so so that's the first thing I want to say. That's about the Plaza Accord, and as I said, there's a reason why we are not back there. There is absolutely no way that the American dollar is going to scale those heights. Remember when you look, when you showed those graphs about the currency uh, changes. Remember that the vast majority of currencies have not shifted by that much. A drop of a few percentage is here or there is not a big deal. It's what you saw in the 1980s was of a completely different order of magnitude. I doubt we are going to see that because as I have said, the Federal Reserve is not going to dare to raise interest rates beyond about 5% or so. And I'll tell you because going up just above 5% back in 2007-8 was all it needed to prick that bubble. So that's one thing. So the United States dollar is not going to strengthen also because, yeah, look look at that chart. I mean, that shows you how, far the federal funds rate had gone and how far below that we are. Secondly because the because the Federal Reserve will not do that the United States economy will continue to malinger. It is not going to get out of this stagflation very easily. They could if they actually implemented a proper industrial policy, but in order to do that, they would have to sacrifice the financial elites' interests. And right now, the financial elites have the American government by the jugular, both parties. None of them are going to pursue the industrial policies that would be necessary. And it is, you see, if you think about inflation, it's a very simple thing. If inflation is indeed too much money chasing too few goods, why isn't there a supply response? Why don't producers say, oh, look, prices are high. We will supply more goods. They don't do that because the American economy is no longer a competitive economy. It is an economy dominated by aging, ailing, giant monopoly companies that are not really vigorous. They are not competitive, et cetera, et cetera. So they cannot solve the inflation problem in the present format. Policy format that they have, and there is no sign of ditching the policy format right now. They're going to stay in this rut for a long time. So I don't see the American dollar strengthening that much at all. So, so, and but yes, uh, having you know those third world countries that have the double misfortune of having borrowed a lot in U.S. dollars and that are not favored today by financial institutions in the form of Capital inflows, yes, they will suffer from debt crises, but that is all there is. And a final point I will make, by the way, about the IMF report, because you particularly wanted to talk about the IMF report. When I read the World Economic Outlook, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 when it yeah, when it came out, I saw it as essentially a essentially aiding the purpose of talking up the dollar in the United States you have to understand that there is an entire industry of talking up the dollar, which deliberately does not mention the many weaknesses of the dollar. Let me just give you one example. Um, Today, uh, you know, the dollar strength, uh, Michael and I argued, and I argued in my geopolitical economy before that, That since the 1970s, the dollar has has appeared to remain the world currency, chiefly because the United States has tried, you know, various stratagems and each of them have failed and they have been replaced with a new stratagem of essentially attracting money into the dollar. Whether it is high interest rates in the 1980s or creating the asset bubbles that they created in the late 90s and 2000s and today's so-called everything bubble, these asset bubbles, once they are created, then it are it's essentially attracts money into the American financial system, and thereby the United States can run deficits without there being too much pressure on the dollar. Although I would add also that the dollar has not has never regained the heights that it had. Earlier, So anyway, so they keep attracting. Now, what is the really interesting thing about this? The asset markets into which the Americans, are, uh, the Federal Reserve is trying to attract the world's money are failing to do so. What is the best evidence of that? It is the size of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. If you can find the Federal Reserve balance sheet and show it, you will see that Federal Reserve has been supporting these asset markets because the rest of the world isn't doing so. So it shows you that the American dollar, yeah, that is a very. So this shows you that even early in this uh, century, the uh, the total of Federal balance sheet was around one trillion. Then it went up to about two trillion after two thousand and eight, and since then it rose. And then in the latest pandemic crisis, it has gone up even more all of this because the federal gov- the, the 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 American authorities have responded to the pandemic crisis and today uh, uh, essentially by shoring up asset markets and they have provided this artificial support because the rest of the world is no longer certain after particularly after 2008 that they should be investing in these potentially toxic American asset bubbles.
0: Yeah, I mean I actually already had the this um balance sheet up because you had mentioned it previously in a seminar hosted by the International Manifesto Group. And it's an incredible graph. I mean, it shows these quantitative easing policies because if you, also if you look at the selected assets specifically, it's so funny because it it shows that pretty much all of this are securities held outright. And you can see, especially after the financial crash, that's when the policy of quantitative easing began. And the U.S., Central Bank, the Federal Reserve basically just began buying all of these assets, which is really incredible. I mean, um, creating its own bubble. And that was already an, an incredible policy leading to $4 trillion. But specifically since 2020, it more than doubled to nearly $9 trillion, And it's Slowly, it looks like it's slowly going to go back down now with potentially because the interest rates are slightly going I, up. I
1: would also add one other thing. They they have looked at they, they, every time they have tried to reduce it. They have only managed to reduce it. You see um, in the uh, in the late teens of the century, they reduced it a little bit. And once again, they're reducing it a little bit. But basically, they cannot dump these assets because if they were to do so, there's, there are no buyers who's going to buy them. And if there's nobody to buy them, these asset markets will crash. And another way of thinking about the interest rate issue and the strength of the dollar issue is this. If you look at the if you look at the size of that effort, of the size of the balance sheet and as in as indicative of the effort that the Federal Reserve has put into securing asset markets, providing them with a bottom below which they cannot fall. This is the scale of the effort. Now, why would they destroy this effort by increasing interest rates, which are bound to prick the very bubbles that they have created? So they are in a quandary right now. And so increasingly, what we are going to see is, oh, dear. Um, sorry, one second. I have, a, I have to plug my computer in. I thought it was plugged in, but it isn't. Just give me a second.
0: Well, yeah. I'll just while you're plugging in, I'll um.
1: There, that's. It. Yeah,
0: go ahead. Go ahead.
1: No, no, I'm done. So, so yeah, that's that's all I'm saying is that they're not going to do that. They, they. So, so essentially, the the uh, the um the Federal Reserve is caught in a quandary, and in a certain sense, the dollar can't win because on the one hand, in order to keep up the value of the dollar, which is to keep money flowing into dollar-denominated assets. It has to keep interest rates low. It has to keep up the quantitative easing policy, et cetera. But that very policy is putting further downward pressure on the dollar. So the present strength of the dollar is, I think, going to be a very passing episode.
0: Yeah. And and something that you said that, it, that I hadn't thought about, but is a very convincing argument, and I think you're absolutely right about this, is that even if you look at the the Fed's um, interest rates. This is the federal funds rate from the the Fred um, from the uh, Federal Reserve of St. Louis, and um, and
1: it's from give the dates from the starting and ending dates. So yeah, from
0: 1954 yes. until today. Exactly. But the, the point that you made in an article, which I'm going to go to in a second, which is a great point, is that when you look at this this bubble of quantitative easing that came after the 2008 crash. Where interest rates were basically zero. In reality, they weren't like it says for here, it says, for instance, that in in October 2011, the federal funds effective rate was 0.07%. But as you pointed out, if you actually include inflation, because there is some inflation, it's actually technically a negative interest rate. And you pointed out that even though now we see that the Fed is increasing, in fact, I think um, it just increased by another, by another 75 basis points just, just a few days ago. Correct. But you've argued that it's still only going to get at, to maybe maximum 5%, which is where it was at in 2006, 2007, before the 2008 crash. And when you, when you factor in inflation, it's not even 3% right now. It's actually a, a little below 3%. So no, yeah, no. it's a really if good point. If you that,
1: factor in inflation, which is still running at 7 or 8%, you still have negative interest rates yeah. in the United States.
0: Yeah. So technically, even though there's, you know, there's all this in the, in the financial press, there's all this paranoia. People are freaking out over the Fed continuing to raise interest rates, but they're always say it's like, you know, 75 basis points, 50 basis points. We're not talking about a Volcker shock here. And this leads me to your article that you actually published a month ago in the, in the new left review, but I, I just published it for our discussion today over at Multipolarisa.com. I'll link to it in the description below. And, and I wrote a headline just because the original headline was like vectors of inflation. So I just wrote a headline, what is really causing inflation? Neoliberal financialization decimated productive capacity. That's what you argued. And I'll go to, the, to your argument here. And I'll let you, of course, articulate it further. But just um, what you wrote in your article here is the real culprit is, is the decline of U.S. productive capacity. And that's been caused by neoliberal policies. And you've pointed out that this is the flip side of the ceaseless growth in financial activity since the 80s. And you said this is a process of financialization or in plural financializations. And that's come to rest on asset bubbles sustained by lax monetary policy. And at the bottom of your article, you conclude saying that both the inflation hawks and the inflation inflation doves fail to keep this in mind. That the dynamics of financialization contribute to inflation by raising the value of housing and commodity prices. That's what I mentioned earlier. We've seen asset price inflation, and that allows the rich to maintain their spending at inflation, at inflated prices. So maybe you want to expand the argument that you made further about why the inflation we're seeing now is happening and why it's different from the, the inflation that led to the Volcker shock in, in 1979.
1: So okay I mean you know again I would say that um, one of you know I'm uh, it's this has been a really interesting discussion because we've become more conscious of how uh, you know the 70s and 80s are different from were different from what we have today and another very very important difference which we should never be forgotten when the western countries when the US economy entered into the stagflationary crisis of the 1970s what lay immediately behind it were three fat decades of robust growth and a, a lot of you know really good years in so it was a relatively strong economy that entered into a crisis today the economy that is entering into crisis has been emaciated By four decades of neoliberalism, so in that sense, again, you know, what the crisis that we are going to have now in the United States, in the United States itself, is going to make the 1970s look like a walk in the park. It may even, it will even make the Volcker-induced recessions of the 1980s look easy. So that's the first thing one has to remember. The second thing is absolutely the financialization in in a certain sense has strangulated the American economy in a number of different ways. So first of all, what has happened is that uh, profits that are made in the economy through the productive economy, are increasingly diverted to financial investment i hate the fact that in english we use it perhaps in other languages to be used the same word investment to mean two totally opposite in fact polar opposite things on the one hand we call setting up a new mill or a new factory or a new farm or a new mine investment and on the other hand we call buying stocks and bonds investment they are not the same thing in fact the one is the opposite of the other so money is diverted into financial activity as money is diverted into financial activity increasingly the um increasingly the the the, the uh, uh the the the, the, the but, uh, there is no productive investment so pro- uh, productivity suffers the economy shrinks and f- Further investment, financial investment, also increases inequality. As inequality increases, again, the vast majority of people are making stagnant wages or maybe even declining real wages. And therefore, demand is not expanding. If demand is not expanding, then any rational capitalist is not going to invest in productive activity. So again, it exacerbates the spiral of more and more of the profits that are made going towards financial investment rather than productive investment. So that is one of the that is the chief way in which finance strangulates these economies. But then it gets worse. It gets worse because the more financial uh, investment there is, the more speculation there is, the more asset bubbles there are and so on, they also directly contribute to inflation. So, for example, uh, you you can read many articles which argue very correctly that the current food and fuel price inflation are as much because of commodity price speculation as they are because of genuine shortages., uh, so in this way, by driving up prices of assets, prices of ho- uh, houses, et cetera, you know, you have rent inflation. So, and I would also perhaps I like to add one other thing when we are talking about inflation. You know, many people say that you know, even today, people say, oh, central banks have been so good at keeping inflation low, and now this is, you know what has happened, et cetera. It is not central bank policy that kept inflation low. What kept inflation low was essentially American imperial policy and American pro-capitalist policies, which had did two things. Number one, it put downward pressure on wages in the in the major capitalist countries themselves. So you have the horrible scandal of uh, Amer- most American workers making you know, essentially stagnant wages while the wealth of the rich kept growing to absurd proportions. I mean, today we have levels of inequality that has not been witnessed at any point in human history. If we think that as capitalist economies we are better than feudal economies, forget it. We are at a new stage of inequality. So 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 they are uh, so that's happening. so so uh, um, sorry, I just lost my train of thought, but uh, what I'm trying to say is that um, oh yes, federal credibility, the Federal Reserve did not keep inflation down. So the first thing is they kept wages down. and in fact, I have uh, written about how, uh, based on other sources which have shown this, that the Federal Reserve actually raised interest rates. And strangulated productive growth precisely in order to keep down wage growth. Okay, that is what it has done for the last several decades. The secondly, the, uh, the other thing that the Federal Reserve did through particularly the neoliberal policies that you were referring to earlier and so on is it kept downward. It kept it imposed downward pressure on the prices of the of the products, both primary products and light industrial products of third world countries. So in that sense, you know, the American worker may not be making stagnant wages, but if he could buy t-shirts for $5 and sneakers for $20, then what did he have to worry? He had less to worry about. And of course, food, uh, uh, people don't understand the extent to which the food we consume in first world countries is imported. The level of food dependence of first world countries is far greater than the overwhelming majority. Of third world countries, these were the reasons for low inflation, and that these are the reasons also that that no longer obtain today. Because even you know, to some extent, I think what we are looking at is that uh, essentially the third world producer has been squeezed so much that he is today unable to supply food products, for example, in the same quantity. So we're looking at a really, really dire crisis from that point of view.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, the neoliberal argument going back to Milton Friedman has always been that every, always and everywhere, inflation is a monetary phenomenon. It's simply a problem of, of having too much money in circulation and you need a, a tighter monetary policy to re- remove liquidity from the economy and all that. But that argument ignores the fact that this quantitative easing policy, I mean, in Japan, it goes back really to the 1990s. But in the U.S., I mean, Japan has had a problem with deflation, which is very different from the U.S. But anyway, the point is, in the U.S., we've seen the Fed do constant quantitative easing, which is basically, you know, you know they talk about the, this. There's this uh, meme. You've probably seen like money money machine go burr or whatever. They just keep printing money or whatever. It's not even printing yes. money. It's all just zeros on a on a on a computer. But the point is, this policy has gone on since 2008 and we didn't see the same I- inflation in the CPI and the Consumer Price Index there was massive asset price inflation, which is exactly the argument you're making. That was intentional asset price inflation to to raise the price, the value of stocks and bonds and real estate for the fire sector, finance, insurance, real estate. But it's only now in the past year or two with the pandemic and then the proxy war in Ukraine and energy crises and uh, corporations just intentionally price gouging and also speculation. Now we see um inflation in the in the CPI. And this leads me to um you you raised a few points. One of them I wanted to bring up and I actually talked about this with with Michael Hudson a few months ago, which is a a uh, I wrote an article about a press briefing in which the US Fed chair Jerome Powell said the the goal of the Fed was to get wages down. He said this in May at a press briefing. He said the goal is to get wages to get inflation down, to get wages down. And then get inflation down without having to slow the economy and have a recession and have unemployment rise materially. So that that's him speaking clearly. You know, that's that's the heavy-handed, uh, you know, neoliberal response from the Fed to inflation is to increase unemployment and to dr- to drop wages. And yes. then, um, but you raised Radhika, you raised a really important point, point. and this is something that the um, the Putnicks have argued, uh, Utsa Putnick and uh, Prabhat Putnick, that one of their main differences with Lenin's argument of imperialism, and that's obviously a whole other long conversation. Maybe someday that would be a fun conversation to have to talk about um, updating Lenin's um, view of of imperialism, because of course, Lenin was writing one, he was writing in 1916 before the Bolshevik revolution. There were no socialist states. And two, Lenin was writing for a European audience, largely trying to convince them why they should oppose the inter-imperialist war of world war one. He wasn't writing for socialists in the global South for arguing for decolonization. And even Lenin's writings on imperialism changed. And later on, if you look at the the definition of imperialism from the second international and, well, the second international split from the third international, excuse me. If you look at the definition of imperialism later from the third international and the common turn, it emphasized the oppressor nations and oppressed nations as opposed to the export of capital. Because I mean, that's a whole, whole long conversation, but like, according to that, that definition, which should be updated, like the US would not be imperialist in scare quotes because the US actually is a net importer of capital because the US has, has had constantly had a current account deficit, which means it has a capital account surplus because it has a trade deficit. So there's constantly capital flowing into the US. So, according to that old definition that needs to be updated, that, that would mean that China is imperialist because China is a net exporter of capital to the U.S. So anyway, that, that's a long aside there. Someday I would like to have a conversation about that. But but the point that the Potniks have argued is that one of the key points of imperialism is to keep wages low in the imperial in the in the uh, periphery, which is a way that that's the way that capitalists in the imperial core can also reduce wages but maintain purchasing power for the consumers. Because as you said, I mean, if, you know, the capitalists want to pay workers anywhere as little as they can, including in the imperial core, and by having cheap consumer goods from the, the periphery, that means that that the even though the purchasing power of workers in the imperial core has declined in terms of real wages since 1978, they can actually buy more with their reduced real wages. And this gets me to comments that were made by the... Uh, EU foreign policy chief, Joseph Burrell. And actually, I did an article in a video about this a few weeks ago. In October, he, he made comments about how the West neoliberal, the neoliberal bubble of prosperity was based on China and Russia. It was an incredible admission. He, he made this on October 10th at the EU Ambassadors Conference. So keep in mind, the audience he was speaking to was, he w- was to other EU, uh, EU ambassadors. He's not speaking to the general public. But um, he made an incredible admission here. Uh, here's, the, here's the quote. He said, Our prosperity has been based on cheap energy coming from Russia, Russian gas, cheap and secure and stable, and also access to the Chinese market for exports and imports, for technology transfers, for investments, for having cheap goods. And then here, the EU foreign policy chief, Radhika, he is confirming exactly what you just said. He admits Chinese workers with their low salaries have done much better and much more to contain inflation than all of the central banks together. So that's confirmation from the EU foreign policy chief. Our prosperity was based on China and Russia, Russia's energy, China's market, and China's cheap, cheap wages. And of course now... that energy can no longer come from Russia, the cheap energy. And Chinese real wages have significantly increased, which means that they can no longer rely, and not just in China, in Vietnam, in Indonesia, to a lesser extent in India, to a lesser extent in Bangladesh. In general, across across the periphery, real wages have increased, which means that you can no longer sustain that bubble of cheap consumer goods in the neoliberal financialized economy. Yeah,
1: I, I would, I totally agree with you, and I would slightly disaggregate it. What has happened, in fact, is that thanks to uh, the Chinese government's deft economic management, certainly Chinese wages have gone up. And remember, the sheer amount of goods that China exports, uh, you know, it, the rise in wages in China is definitely affected. In other countries, this is much less so, but then they were much less systemically important as producers of the goods that people elsewhere used. So, so, but yes, absolutely. So some of this is happening, but I should also underline, first of all, that I am really glad that you brought up Utsai Sai Prabhat Patnaik's arguments because I think that their point that in order for, see, their point is very simple. They say that basically in order for Western countries to be able to buy what they want from the rest of the world at favorable prices, all they have to do is to keep their currency overvalued. What aids in overvaluing these currencies is the imposition of income deflation on third world countries. Because quite simply, their argument is very simple. They say if third world countries were to develop even to a significant extent, let alone you know, not, not even totally catch up to Western countries, but simply develop to, to live decent lifestyles, what would then happen is that they would demand so much of the primary commodities uh, 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 various primary commodities that are produced in the world, that the prices of these primary commodities would go up. Remember, the big commodity cycle that you saw of rising prices was totally associated with the expansion of China and the BRICS countries, right, in the early 2000s and uh, so- about from, from about 2004 to 2014, that was a commodity cycle, right? So in that sense, they're absolutely right that this is what's going on. And so what you have to do is you have to prevent third world countries from developing, because if they were to do so, you will not be able to get the commodities you need <coughs> for the prices that they have become used to, essentially. <coughs> So, yeah, I mean, does that sorry? Did I answer your question or did I miss something?
0: No, no, no. no. Sorry. I didn't know if you were (coughs) going to continue. I didn't want to cut you off. No, I mean, for me, when I saw those comments from Borrell, it was incredible because this again, he's speaking to an EU ambassador audience. He's not speaking to the general public. And honestly, there weren't that many people that reported on those comments. He made a speech three days later in which he made the extremely racist, neocolonialist yes. remarks about Europe being an enlightened garden and the rest of the world being a barbaric jungle. Um, but the speech he made three days before, very few people reported on that. And I think that was so revealing, acknowledging yes. that that neoliberal model was based on keeping wages in the global South as low as possible. And that's why we see, for instance, you know, WikiLeaks, when it published these State Department cables, a published document showing that the Hillary Clinton State Department, and this is, of course, bipartisan, but the Hillary Clinton State Department was lobbying Haiti to try to re- prevent the minimum wage from increasing to something like, you know, $2 a day or something. They were, the U.S. was trying to keep the minimum wage lower because they need a wage floor. Because if Haiti and Honduras increase their minimum wages, then that puts pressure on other countries to raise their minimum wages in the Global South. They need that wage fo- floor to be as low as possible. And now with the rise of real wages and and also with the end of cheap Russian energy because of the EU's economic blockade imposed on Russia, not because Russia doesn't want to export the this energy. The
1: EU's economically suicidal blockade, we might add.
0: Yeah, economic harikari <laughs> being committed right now by, by Europe. And then, uh, you know, with the new Cold War decoupling the U.S. economy from China, I mean, it really is a perfect storm for destroying everything that this neoliberal bubble was built on.
1: I would say one thing, you know, I mean, this is very interesting. And this is where I think that there is an analogy. You know, Michael is always emphasizing how, for example, the Americans tried to destroy Japan. I don't entirely agree that it succeeded, but I agree that it tried. Similarly, what's happening now, and again, Michael is making the same argument, that the, the, one of the main aims of this war is actually not so much directed against russia as against europe so uh and particularly against germany so what you what is now happening is that uh a, a very accelerated deindustrialization is being imposed upon germany simply by the simple uh uh, uh simple um device of of uh, preventing germany from accessing the energy that its industry absolutely needs. So once you do that, and it it really is a a sign of, you know, one of my other arguments that I make in capitalism, uh, coronavirus and war um, is that basically what we have, what we are looking at after 40 years of neoliberalism that have destroyed economies, divided societies, made them more unequal, uh, you know, uh, uh, made, made pol- politics more divisive, undermined culture. That, I mean, in ev- on every front, neoliberalism has been like a slow poison in Western societies. So, what another effect of this has been to radically lower the quality of leadership. So you have essentially, you know, politicians like Boris Johnson and Donald Trump and Liz Truss and Anna-Lena Baerbock. I mean, these people are. I don't know what they think they're doing. It is incredible that you have, you know, that the Western countries are now scraping the bottom of the barrel of leadership. And this is what they're coming up with. I mean, it is absolutely shocking that, you know, so so for example, right now, I don't know if you've been reading the same things, but it looks as though, you know, of course the United States is trying to destroy Germany, but even Olaf Scholz, who is no paragon of, you know, mental acuity, realises that you know uh, the, the german industry is being destroyed and clearly german industry must be lobbying him to do something so apparently he undertook this mission to, to china along with a whole bunch of uh, you know bevy of business people who are co- corporate leaders and so on who have all gone to china with the aim of you know essentially trying to to salvage something of, of their economy meanwhile at the exact same time uh, Annalena Baerbock is hosting uh, uh, G seven foreign ministers as a direct counter. So even the German coalition government is divided from within. You simply do not do that to your prime minister if he's leading. You know, if he's leading his foreign policy in one direction, then you push in another direction. I mean, it's incredible.
0: <clears throat> yeah, uh, Olaf Olaf Scholz went to Germany and he said. Very interesting comments. I mean, I don't think I'll act on them, but he said uh, he wrote an article in Politico. It is here that the new centers of the the new centers of power are emerging in a multipolar world. And he said, we aim to establish and expand partnerships with all of them. Now, uh, whether or not the U.S. will let Europe do that is is another thing. uh, You know, maybe Schultz could be on the proverbial U.S. leash and whether or not they'll let him. Um, he says he doesn't want to decouple from the Chinese economy, but it seems like the U.S. government, both parties are pretty hell-bent on decoupling from China, and they're also going to end up committing economic suicide unless they unless they re-industrialize. And this can be, brings me to the final question, Radhika, because we're, we're already at an hour and a half, and it's been an excellent discussion. But the final question I wanted to conclude with, I think, is you know, the logical question that, re- that emerges from all of this discussion today. How of course, you can't predict the future, but how and can this neoliberal model survive without all of those factors that we mentioned, the low wages in the global, in the global South and the periphery, the cheap Russian energy, the Chinese market, all those are gone. So we've seen this systemic crisis. Furthermore, we see deindustrialization and financialization of the entire economy. So when you, we're talking about economic decoupling. Well, when you decouple your economy from production, how, and you, the only way you can maintain that wealth is through imperialism. It's through the extraction of wealth from, from the periphery, because that's where the production takes place. If you offshore all of your production, no economy can be based solely on finance. It has to be based ultimately on production because that's ultimately where value comes from, from labor, right? So, how can these economies sustain themselves? Clearly, yeah. they're going to implode. People talk about zombie neoliberalism, but I mean, it seems like implosion is more likely.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I, I totally agree. So what I, so first of all, let me say that I would say, uh, you know, particularly this has become really clear with the whole Liz Truss episode in the UK. And also, by the way, tomorrow we are going to see what happens in the United States. And I I am filled with apprehension about what will happen. But basically what all this shows is that Western economies, particularly the two leading neoliberal financialized countries, namely the United States and the United Kingdom, are in an accelerated tailspin of decline. It is no wonder that people in the United States are talking about you know, civil war and are we seeing a new civil war and so on. And who knows, we might see the eruption of one tomorrow. Uh, or in the days to come immediately. So that's the first point I want to make. The second point I would say is that, so definitely there is this tailspin of crisis, but as they go down the tailspin of crisis, they are still not giving up on neoliberalism because, you know, many people say that neoliberalism has ended. You know, people are making big statements about this, but I would say that, you know, It's only true if you think neoliberalism is about free markets. But in reality, neoliberalism has never been about free markets. It's always been about advancing corporate power and the corporate hold over our governments. And that will continue. At least they will try to continue it. So what I've given this new, you know, I I argue that neoliberalism has, of course, never been uh, the neoliberalism was touted as the thing that was going to restore productive dynamism to Western economies, but it did nothing of the sort because its rhetoric of free market it was indulging in the rhetoric of visions, illusions about free markets and competition, when in reality, Western countries were saddled with a profoundly monopolistic economies. So they were not going to revive these monopolistic economies by free markets. In reality, what really marched forward under the covering fire of the rhetoric of free markets was the power of giant corporations. So now, in this context, then, because neoliberalism was not working, it was constantly shifting shape, you know, so you got the classic neoliberalism of free markets of Reagan and Thatcher in the 80s, then you got the neoliberalism of globalization in the 90s, then you got the neoliberalism of empire in the 2000s, and then of austerity in the 2010s. And now I would my argue in my book that we are going to see an attempt to try to inaugurate a new phase of neoliberalism, which I call pseudo-civic neoliberalism. And the idea there will be that essentially our governments, uh, or corporations will engage in the rhetoric of saying governments must provide the citizenry with certain essential goods, whether they are vaccines or medical care or whatever it is, either very cheap or free. They will be the ones who will supply these things to the government at a overvalued price at at inflated prices so they will make huge profit margins we will receive them for free but as citizens but we will pay for them through our taxes and this is the kind of scenario that i see bill gates sort of with with his sort of pseudo civic responsibility rhetoric trying to direct the western economies towards but And this is where you always have to see the contradiction. You may try to do something, but there is no guarantee you will succeed because what is also happening is that darker forces have emerged in these economies, the Trump phenomenon, the Johnson phenomenon, and all of that, they are not flashes in the pan. They are there. They are there in part because, by the way, the left is not there. The neoliberal decades should have been decades of a bonanza on the left. The, what was not to oppose in neoliberalism, but the left was not in the forefront of doing that. And so we are paying the price for that. The people who have mobilized the discontents of neoliberalism by by bamboozling them, by fooling them, are the J- Trumps and the Johnsons of this world. And that's, that's really shame on, on what we on the left are responsible for in many ways. But nevertheless, these darker forces also portend a more authoritarian outcome than even what I call pseudo-civic neoliberalism. So it's it's really going to be scary. It's going to be, you know, the IMF report, by the way, doesn't even get the half of it. We are going to, as I said, these economies are in a tailspin spin of decline. They are in possession of vast military machines they are desperate. We don't know what they will do. It's it's really a problematic scenario.
0: Yeah. Well, another a brilliant um, economist like you. I mean, I would put you up in the same camp. I, I think you similar thoughts. Private Putnick has talked about how uh, the only way neoliberalism, neoliberalism can sustain itself is through fascism, and yes. he says, you know, India's model is a model that we're going to see adopted in many countries, yes. and. Donald Trump's an example of that. You know, Donald Trump had all this rhetoric about bringing back jobs and reindustrialization. He didn't do any of that. He oversaw further financialization, more neoliberal policies with a, a further fascification, if you will, of US political culture. And I think we're going to see more and more of that. We certainly see that in Europe with the European far right. Um, a classic example, this is Georgia Maloney, the new prime minister That's in Italy, right. who got her start as the, the youth leader of this fascist, Movement that was founded by veterans of the fascist dictatorship. She praised Mussolini and economically, she's a complete neoliberal. The first thing she did after winning the election was cut the very small amount of economic support for unemployed people and poor people. So, you know, the BJP in India is, is an example of that a combination of brutal neoliberal economic policies with fascism. Yes. And you yeah, go ahead.
1: No, I, all I wanted to say is that, you know, I mean, I was among the first to to use the word fascist, not the only one, but certainly among the first. And I even had a huge uh, uh, fight with a publisher because I wanted to call this uh, the BJP government fascist in 2014 and they wouldn't publish my article. I published it elsewhere. But everybody now i remember i have now friends who say you know radhika you've been saying for years that the modi government is fascist i never believed you but i believe you now and this is and and prabhat is absolutely right the indian model will spread
0: well it's a very pessimistic note to end on but i also think it's a, a rather uh you know a realistic observation and you know, uh, I'll, I hope to have you back many, many more times, Radhika. Um, you're always a wealth of knowledge and have so much great analysis. And in fact, I would love to do an episode sometime expanding on an, an idea that you discussed in one of the seminars of the International Manifesto Group about the difference between China's economic model and India's. And I think it's very instructive because, of course, um, in South Asia gets independence from British colonialism in 1947, and then um, China has the victory of the Communist Revolution in 49. So it's similar time periods ending colonization and the economic trajectories they've taken have been very different, especially since the 1990s. So hopefully we can have a discussion about that. And maybe, um, you know, I, I think it would also be good. It, maybe it could be very provocative, but to try to also do an update on Lenin's analysis of imperialism, yes. because I think, you know, although he still was very prescient and very accurate about some things, the world is very different today. And And sometimes I I I, I would
1: really love to do both of them, and on particular on the Lenin thing, I will I I will send you a piece I did on Hilferding of all people, but it contains the pith of how we need how we can relate what Lenin and Hilferding and others were talking about to today's what is relevant about it today. It it you know it, it unlocks many of these keys that you were yourself referring to earlier. So yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, because just as you know, Marx was building on the classic classical uh, political economy and classical economics, you know, liberal economists like um, Adam Smith and and others. Lenin similarly was building on British political economists and uh, their analysis of imperialism. So I think you know today, absolutely, certainly, I think
1: about that. Absolutely, yes.
0: Yeah, I mean, you, uh, Michael Hudson, the the Potniks, I think, have all done invaluable. Work and I, I, I feel in very theory.
1: honored that you put me in their company. So,
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I, I consider you all uh, coming from a similar camp, and um, well, uh, lot, lots more to discuss. But um, we're going to bring it to a conclusion there. I had the privilege of speaking with Professor Radhika Desai. Uh, Professor Desai teaches at the Department of Political Studies at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, Canada, and she's the author of many books. But you should definitely check out Geopolitical Economy. And Professor Desai has a book that she's going to be releasing um, just in a few weeks here. It's called Capitalism, Coronavirus, and War. And she wants to stress that uh, anyone who wants to read that can be able to, they can read that for free as a PDF. Um, I linked in the description below to the International Manifesto group. I I collaborate with them and Radhika is one of the main um, conveners of that group. And also, um, she works with this group, which I also um, help with New Cold War. So lots of great projects there. And I want to thank you for even kind of creating this term geopolitical economy, because people have been like asking me more recently, like what what kind of work I do. And increasingly, I used to say it's about imperialism. But now I'm actually say I think it's geopolitical economy because it's not just geopolitics. (laughs) And unfortunately, you know, we can talk about this another time. but. I think a lot of geopolitics, unfortunately, is dominated by a lot of bourgeois, even conservative thinkers. And sometimes they are good with their analysis, but they leave out economics. And you can't understand geopolitics without economics. So thank you for discuss
1: all those things in another one. Absolutely.
0: Definitely. Well, thanks to Radhika and thanks to everyone who commented. Um, There was a very vibrant discussion. There were some trolls, but it's you know, that's that's inevitable with these. We had a really good discussion. viewer turnout uh, we are, right now we have over 400 people at one point we were we were around 500 so in 600 so it was it was a great um turnout and i will have radhika back again very soon so thanks a lot okay. to everyone and i'll see you next time
1: thanks ben